Okay, welcome everybody. Is there anybody here who's never been to a culinary historian's program? Yes? No? Okay, good. Then all of you will understand that today is going to be highly unusual. Because not only was the original speaker not appearing, Scott is not appearing today as well. So I'm substituting for everybody. Uh, (laughs) uh, He's supposed to go... The paperwork that he had scheduled to work on tomorrow, he had to do today because tomorrow he's going to a, a funeral. So yesterday morning, it's like Friday's picking up the phone in the morning are starting to be frightening because a week ago it was Nancy canceling and yesterday it was Scott going, do you think you could sort of like take care of things yourself? Yeah, sure, okay, what the heck, you know, I'll be versatile. Um, I'd just like to also point out in two weeks at the Chicago History Museum will be the next Culinary Historians program. It will be Virginia Willis. The title of her talk is On Being a Cook of the 21st Century South. Um, I don't know yet what the topic... I haven't read through it to tell you what the topic is about. I apologize, but that's what it is. Information will be email blasted this afternoon once I get home, because I'm very versatile, you know. (laughs) Three, two weeks, three weeks from now is the um, Come Where the Sacred Meets the Quivering Profane, Exploring the Public and Private Spheres of Ludafisk. Uh, this is a program actually borrowed from the, uh, was originally presented at the uh, culinary historians or culinary enthusiasts or whatever up in Madison, Wisconsin. Yes, sir. The Virginia Willis, I'm sorry, is the third. And that will be at um, the Chicago History Museum. No, Ludafisk is the tenth. Yeah, I know. It's, there's so many spine-tingling programs, we don't want to get mixed up. Uh, <laughs> and it's going to be a short film. Uh, this woman is a folklorist. Uh, her specialty is Scandinavian studies. It should be very interesting. I hope so. Um, You also probably received earlier this week a call for papers and a save the date for the Greater Midwest Foodways Symposium. It's April 27th, 28th, 29th, and it's going to be Road Food, Exploring the Midwest, One Bite at a Time. Uh, And in January, information to be offered a little bit later, there will be actually three programs, one culinary historian and two roundtable. It had largely to do with people's availability. So now we're going to have sort of like the TV show, The Outer Limits, where the, show, where the program was taken over by something else. Think about that in a moment, because I'm going to read Scott's introduction of me. And I figured the only way to make this make sense is to make it sound like it's from Outer Limits. I thought about this about 4 o'clock this morning. Good morning. I am so sorry that I could not be here this morning, uh, be here this morning to introduce Kathy who is going to roll out a slice of pie history that you will never forget. But if I were here, here's what I would tell you about Kathy. You know what this means. I'm getting my skewer. (laughs) She's a founder and moderator of LTH Forum, the Chicago-based culinary chat site, a founder of Greater Midwest Foodways Alliance dedicated to celebrating, exploring, and preserving unique food traditions and their cultural context in the American Midwest. And every month she organizes programs for Chicago Foodways Roundtable of Culinary Historians of Chicago. That paragraph was me. Now we're on to Scott. Kathy is also the perfect person to pitch in for our original speaker, author and teacher Nancy McDermott, who was scheduled to speak but had to cancel at the last minute because of pressing matters at home. You see, Kathy personifies, this is so strange, (laughs) personifies all that makes pies so pleasurable. She's crusty, wonderfully flaky, and oh so tender. (laughs) Truly a pious person. (laughs) Kathy has a passion for pies that she wants to share so much that she offered to be the understudy for Nancy McDermott if Nancy somehow couldn't make it. And that made me suspicious. 
There was only one other time in the 18-year history of culinary historians that we had a speaker who had to cancel at the last minute. Did Kathy know something we didn't know? This reminds me of the famous 1950 movie All About Eve, where actress Ann Baxter plays the understudy to Betty Davis and plots to have Miss Davis miss her Broadway show so that she could jump in and deliver a dazzling performance. Hmm, if I were here, (laughs) I would crank up the heat and get at least some half-baked truth out of Kathy on what she did to Nancy to deter her from appearing today. But since I am not here, (laughs) Kathy will get off (laughs) scot-free and deliver an Academy Award-winning perfect pie talk, I'm sure. And as they say, the pie must go on. We now return to regularly scheduled programming. We enjoyed, I, he, he, this was quite the hoot on the phone last night. <laughs> oh my. Um, so the program today is on pies. Now Nancy was going to talk pie from a southern perspective. And of course she has the book Southern Pies, which I have read in the last few days. Um, they're Southerners, which means they claim everything is being Southern. Um, some things I actually think may not be, but that's okay. It's her book. But since she didn't come today, I have that opportunity to make that comment. <laughs> she also has, was here a few years ago and did the book Southern Cakes, which I have really come to find a pretty reliable book for making a number of things and a lot of very interesting fruitcakes. So I just thought, you know, she is actually quite good. So I'm going to talk about pies in the American context. Now, if Mr. Edgar Rose was here today, and I started to talk about America, uh, there's this front seat. There's a seat in the front. Um, now, if Mr. Rose were here, you know Mr. Rose, Edgar Rose, he would be the first one, apple pie, it's not American. Because <laughs> he says that. Remember a few months ago we had this woman talking about Indian Foods, and she has the website um, as Indian as was it was it, as Indian as an apple pie or something like that. And he's like, "No, it's not." Well, let's look at it a little bit differently. You know, there is pizza that's served in Italy, and then there's the pizza that's served here in Chicago. Depending on the restaurant you go to, it's a very different beast and unrecognizable, perhaps, to the Italians. When you take a look at pie in the American context. It was survival food, especially early on, because you could plant a tremendous amount of apple trees, and you could, this is where I get to advance the thing. Oh, by the way, this is a little uh, bakery out in the middle of nowhere, Nevada, and I believe this little thing mounted in front of it, I think is cow patties, dried cow patties to heat the oven. I'm pretty darn sure. Um... But with with a pie, we'll say we're going back to apple pie. You know, there would be people who would have like a hundred apple trees to take care of their family's needs, and then in the fall they would take down the apples, and it would be sort of like you know, like the the ladies would come over and take turns going to each other's house, and they would peel and core and slice, and then they would put out sheets and dry the apples during the day, and at night roll them back in, and of course. If the bees got in there and the flies to suck up some of the juices, they were delighted because it helped to accelerate the, the drying. Of course, when you point out, and my niece said, what about the little poo that they leave? I was like, well, that's just extra added protein, perhaps. <laughs> um, but, but when they ran out of food in the winter, those dried apples, you could take like 20, fre- 20 bushels of fresh apples and would compact, compact to about three bushels dried. That was maybe breakfast, lunch, and dinner for months on end. Because you would take your apples in the evening and you'd soak them, and in the morning you'd make a pie, and that would be your breakfast, like I said, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it wasn't like the pies that we deal with today where it's, it's a sweet confection. They probably didn't spend their extra money on sugar. So whatever sweetness came from those apples, there was no cinnamon. 
the flour was probably rather rough. And if it was too rough, probably just ate the interior and, and skipped that crust. Um, but you also didn't need a brick-and-mortar oven to make a pie. You could do it in a Dutch oven like you see this here, where you've got the fire below and you, you mound the coals on top. Now, when you ran out of apples, it's winter, you know, you might take to doing things like soaking potatoes in vinegar to kind of get that appleish taste. And when you get into that notion of scraping the bottom of the barrel, well, you know, the cracker barrel, that was also an opportunity to make something that was like an apple pie. You know, I've spent many a year looking at the back of that rich cracker box going, huh, does anybody make something like that? But in fact, there's a historical context to the back of the box Ritz cracker pie. It was when you got nothing else going. By the way, these are some apples drying. Um, there you are with the pretty, you know, compact. But that Ritz, this is, see, this is apple pie. This is the Ritz cracker apple pie. And it's very simple to make. You kind of like layer the crackers. You put in a simple syrup, maybe with some lemon juice or cream of tartare. If you got the butter, which of course we do, um, dot the crust and then seal it. And it sort of makes an apple pie. And I've done programs like for seniors. And I don't make any comment. I just serve the pie. And they go, oh, this is a delicious apple pie. It's not an apple pie. It's a delicious apple pie. It's not an apple pie. Then what is it? It's a cracker pie. Now, the first time I ever made one, I did my usual boo-boo of thinking I got an understanding of what to do in the beginning without reading through the recipe. So I started that sugar and water boiling, and I threw in all the crackers, and I managed to make something called mock applesauce. And I did force myself to eat some of it, but, you know, to be frugal, but I decided I didn't need to be quite that frugal. Um, now, depending on where you lived and what was available locally, because that's all you had, you would, whatever your pie was would, would incorporate that. So if you were like in the Northeast, you might have a clam pie. Well, when people came to the Northeast, well, that's a Concord grape pie. Um, when they came to the Northeast, when the settlers, when the people came, there were a lot of Concord grapes, so much so that when this information got back to, to Europe, you know, all these grapes, they thought, oh, great, we can also take you know, wine varietals and grow them in the, United, you know, in the Americas. People lost their shirts over that one. But this is a, a, a grape of a different breed. Now, the first time I even heard of this recipe, it was probably in the 80s or 70s, and it was a recipe submitted to the Tribune by W. Clement Stone, an insurance billionaire, somebody who has a tremendous amount of servants. And I thought, oh, yeah, well, that's very nice. He's got the staff to peel a grape. I do not. So I kind of, like, dismissed it, but I still kept the clipping and kept it. Then some years later, I received about 60 pounds of grapes. Well, now I had plenty to play with. So after making the jellies and the juices, I then went and looked into making the, um, the pie. And you can see, it just slips out of your fingers. It just slips right out. You just grab it, it slips right out. Now, if you're doing a quantity, like I will buy sometimes 20 pounds of grapes, uh, you, that's when you're into production on a small scale. And then you grab a handful of grapes and you squeeze it, and all the pulp comes out between your fingers. <laughs> And then, of course, you open up, and there's usually one that didn't leave, so you throw that in the bowl, and you boil it. You separate the skins, you separate the pulp, and you bring it to a boil, Sorry, and the seeds come to the top. But it, you let it cool, because it's much easier to separate once it's cool. I've done it hot. It's, you know, cooling. Cool is good. Um, and I kind of just put it into a sieve. You don't need one of those Foley mills. Because when I did that the first time, little chips of the seed get into the filling. And so you have a gritty filling instead of a smooth filling. Anyway, once you've brought it to a boil, you've separated out the seeds, you bring it to a boil again, you add the skins. And because I make a quantity at a time, I probably do at least a gallon of filling. And Laura, uh, 
Rose Levy Berenbaum has a very nice recipe for cockroach grape pie, and that woman is extremely precise, which I terribly admire. And so I package everything in little pint uh, Ziploc freezer bags, two cups and two tablespoons. I've actually done two cups and skipped the two tablespoons. It still worked out. But, you know, I respect Rose's preciseness, so I tend to follow her advice. But it's an excellent pie. It has a tendency to stain your teeth. So if you want to mark who your guests were, at least for a while, you know, probably maybe 15 minutes to an hour or so, they have the slightly purple teeth. It's excellent. Um, And it's a very good pie. I almost have not seen one retail. Um, I didn't check if Who's Your Mama has it, but I have really never seen it. Now, this is your pumpkin pie. You may as well call it squash pie because really whatever squash happens to be grown in the region is what it's uh, made from. Now, you know, Libby's, the stuff that comes in the can, um, it's not these cute little sugar pie squashes. You can make a very good pie also from a butternut squash. It's made from this very large Dixon, I think it's Dixon or Dickinson squash, and there's about 5,000 acres devoted to it around Morton, Illinois. Illinois is the pumpkin pie capital of the world, except that it's squash. It's not pumpkin, but why argue? Um, Now, this is a molasses pie. And uh, Nancy and I had a little bit of, we had a, a, I read her book, and then I called her up and talked to her a little bit about some of her things. And we sort of, I sort of, I learned stuff from her. Um, The molasses pie, when I've talked about this before, it's predominantly a pie you find in the South. And at that point, what I've always said to people, it was sort of, uh, its reason for being there had to do with triangular trade. You know, slaves, was it slaves, rum, and molasses? But Nancy pointed out in the South, when people use the word molasses, just as often it is sorghum. And even though there's now, at this point, a lot of sugar production in the South, a lot of people still will grow their own sorghum. And you can go to a sorghum mill, and they will process it for you. They'll keep a small quantity for themselves, and the rest goes to you. Um, So she says people will have sorghum they made themselves. She said there's also a series of pies called syrup pies. And these syrup pies can be made from sorghum. They could be from, from molasses, maple syrup, Cairo syrup, you know, corn syrup. They can also be made from um, Lyle's golden syrup, as well as from sugarcane syrup that you can find in the South. And I was recently at a program where we did, I brought all of them along, um, and we sort of did a side-by-side tasting. Not... You know, the molasses I knew I wasn't going to especially like straight on. The sorghum was okay, but the ones that we liked was the sugar cane syrup as well as the Lyle golden syrup. The Lyle golden syrup kind of had like a caramelized taste to it. So it may be something to try. And in her book, if you go get one, it's, um, there's a whole section on, on syrup pies that you might want to look into. Um, this is like your sweet potato pie. And the sweet potato sort of did a little bit of roundabout travel before it came to North America because it's from Central and South America. It went into Europe. It was probably even a, um, a pie, in a dessert in England before it came to the Americas. Um, of course, then, you know, with uh, Washington, George Washington Carver, the sweet potato got even further on the map. Um, And then you have here the bean pie. Now, if you go to some parts of Chicago, like around 73rd and Stony Island, and you're caught up in traffic and you see uh, young men in suits with pies, they're from the Nation of Islam, and this is a fundraiser that they have had going since the 1930s. Now, a few years ago... um, Greater Midwest Foodways did a program on Midwest desserts. And Peter Engler did a very nice um, presentation on this, which is available on the Internet. 
we had a hard time finding a bean pie to buy at, to be at the program. We were on the edge of making it ourselves. Um, but fortunately, we lucked out, and we did find somebody to, uh, to offer it for us. The bean pie is more often than not made from navy beans. It is also can be made from pinto beans. It has sort of the, um, you put the, uh, the beans into like a, a blender, and you spin it around along with, you add some eggs, milk, and such, and it's basically a custard pie. Now, one of the things that came up when Peter was doing this research, he had read um, Elijah Muhammad's book, How to Eat to Live. And he was sort of describing to me, like this guy was very much opposed to nuts, including coconut. He was opposed to sweet potatoes, which is perhaps, you know, maybe the, the bean pie was sort of like having his sweet potato pie. But the more he was describing it to me, I was like, it sounds like the guy has diver reticulitis. You know, that disease where you, the seeds get stuck in your intestinal tract and, you know, have lots of ingestion problems. It also sounded like the guy also had some diabetes because a lot of stuff was very protein-rich. Um, and I was talking when we were in this effort of trying to find a bakery to make the pies, um, I talked with one woman, and she told me she sells maybe three sweet potato pies a week and probably 200 slices of sweet potato you know, pie. She said if she put a bean pie in the case, it might sit there the entire week. But she says if you go into the right segment of the community, you'll find the bean pies, those that are associated with the uh, Nation of Islam. But she says if you go to a Kwanzaa festival there will be not only a bean pie, there will be many bean pies from many different sources, sort of like a bake sale. But she says it's not very apparent. Because I made that mistake assuming it was, you know, the, everybody on the south side would know what a black a bean pie was. And I talked to uh, Washburn Institute, and they were like, they immediately they had some people of different persuasion in the room, and nobody there knew about the bean pie. Yet I was at an elevator in Kendall, and I mentioned the bean pie, and this girl was just thrilled. Um, so it just depends on whom you hit. I didn't realize that. It took a while to really understand there's a strata for it. And it's largely um, major metropolitan areas with a large black population that has the nation of Islam somewhere. Now, if you go into the tropical regions like into Florida, well, one of their key pies is key pies that's too funny um <laughs> one of their favorite pies is the key lime pie and it's coming to be now i did bring by the way some key limes bought at a local store this was a dollar fifties worth of key limes um, when i first started to do this a few years ago i didn't think i could get key limes here i forgot to appreciate uh chicago as the um transportation hub where incidentally a lot of things show up here that may not show up somewhere else but in Chicago this is $1.50 for that I think that's pretty right now I mean limes are also 10 for a dollar at the moment because the lime season is about to fade away actually because limes coming to be in the spring but the key lime this is sort of like the mother of the Tahiti lime that we often see the large one um, this was from Southeast Asia. And it crossed into Europe because of the Crusades. And it also, because of its high vitamin C, became favored with sailors. Remember, they would, the, the British sailors would be called limeys. Limeys! Um, and very likely, when Christopher Columbus came the first time to the Americas, he had limes with him. But if it wasn't him, the conquistadors, whatever. But the first known uh, key lime grove in the Americas, because it was an introduced crop, was about um, 1525. So it was here you know, about as quickly as, as we were. Now, more often than not, the key lime has been usually a, a kitchen uh, plant. It wasn't something that was grown commercially. There's been several attempts that were, have been um, given up on. Uh, 
There were small scale groves about 1883. Then about 1906, there was a hurricane in Florida that wiped out the uh, pineapple crops. They then decided to try key lime. But then another hurricane in the 1920s wiped out those, and they abandoned that. I think there's maybe one small grove that's related to a restaurant in the Keys. Otherwise, there's really no groves. However, in Mexico, there are quite a lot of the key lime groves, and this is the favored lime in Mexico. That large one, that's for the Americans. Um, but the other thing that impacted the key lime, not you know, in its ability to become a commercial um, product in, in the Keys, has also to do with the cost of property. Converting it into a, a attractive homes was more commercially viable than to have it, you know, an agricultural uh, thing. But the, the pie itself, one of the contributions to the pie coming to be had to do with the ability to can milk. And sweetened condensed milk is one of the key ingredients in key lime pie. And that wasn't until about the 1850s. Um, the pie is more often than not associated, at least in my mind, with a graham cracker crust. Now, there were graham crackers in the 1870s. It was health food. But it wasn't until the 1920s when Nabisco added sugar and then it became to taste good that it probably got used more. The meringue top that you often associate with... Uh, um, by the way, if you notice, the key lime there has seeds. The Tahiti lime does not. It's a, apparently a sterile fruit. Um... The acid in the, li- in the key lime juice sort of cooks the, um, the yolks, and then you fold in the uh, condensed, and you pour it in there. But you know, more often than not, you see it with the meringue on top. When you see pies with meringue, it's often an issue of frugality because they use the yolks. What are you going to do with the whites? You know, contemporarily, people don't seem to mind throwing a... P- you know, oh, I don't need the yolks for this dessert. They throw it down the, well, it happens, you know. <laughs> they throw it down the sink. Oh, an egg is cheap. But, you know, in these people, eggs were something you, you could profit from. Eggs, a farm family didn't always consume their own eggs because that was an income source. So when you had an egg, it was either something you spent money from or it was income you were depriving yourself from. So you were going to get the most out of it. Now, this particular key lime... I put whipped cream because I'm a whipped cream girl. But uh, I, I'm sure I used the whites in a responsible manner. <laughs> but we go on now to the pecan pie. This was another area where Nancy and I had an interesting conversation because um, the pecan is, is a type of hickory, plant, uh, hickory nut. Its Latin name is caria. Illinoisensis. It's a species, like I said, a species of hickory. It is native to southern Illinois, southern Iowa, Indiana, east to western Kentucky, western Tennessee, south through Oklahoma, Arkansas to Texas. It goes into it goes into Mexico. One thing you don't hear in that little statement is Georgia. Georgia, it's an introduced crop. And I told that to Nancy. And she was like, what? What? I hope if she listens to this, I'm just, you know, being theatrical, you know. (laughs) But she did seem surprised by that statement. Um, We have our friend Edgar Rose, who's done a lot of research on the pecan. Um, And it's largely his information. I'm gleaning it. I don't interpret it the same way he does, but it's his gleanings. Now, the pecan, according to Edgar, which Nancy somewhat dis- didn't, didn't enjoy, was a, is an unintended consequence of the Civil War. Because after the war, they had all this land. They may not have had the labor force available to them. People died. People moved away. Maybe they couldn't afford it. But they had the land. They needed a cash crop that didn't use very much labor. Um, Nancy would prefer to say they simply like pecans. Okay, she, so I've got both, both sides of the story in there. 
in the 1840s, a slave did experiment on grafting pecans. You know, they're taking the best of. And it was sort of like, okay, that's interesting, but it did progress. But by the 1870s, when they were looking for what to do, grafting um, pecans onto rootstock became something, became more interesting because they were looking for a large nut, a nut that filled that space, and the most uh, disease resistance. But the most important part was that it all ripened at the same time. So when they brought in people to um, harvest the pecans, it was a one-time deal. And, you know, then you, you spent, you know, tremendously less on labor. It also took about 15 years before this became a viable crop. So uh, according to Edgar, he had seen advertisements of retirement homes where there was uh, planted on the site pecan trees, which could be your income later on when you needed it. So it was sort of like, you know, a good life. Now, Nancy did point out that where she, you know, she's from the Carolinas, just about everybody seemed to have a pecan tree. So it is something that is certainly in the... um, in the culture of the South today. It's just that it wasn't there 140 years ago. Um, and that, of course, brings us to the, back to the, the origins of the pecan pie. Now, you have probably the sense, romantic sense, that pecan pies have always been. You probably could imagine Scarlett O'Hare sitting under that bush or tree, sending one bow to get barbecue, another one pecan pie. Didn't happen. It didn't exist then. Molasses pie existed. Chess pie existed. And Edgar believes, and Nancy as well, that the roots of the pecan pie are in the chess and the molasses pies. When I was doing some research for this about four years ago, um, I was in contact with A&D Smith, who had just, at that point, bumped into a pecan recipe used as a filler on a page for Harper's Bazaar from 1884. That was big news. I immediately had to call Edgar and tell him about it and get him a copy as well. Because before that, um, the this is that same um, recipe, before that, the earliest known published recipe was from the 1890s. And it was a St. Louis... Um, yeah, 1899, it was a St. Louis uh, charity, you know, community cookbook. And the recipe had been supplied by this woman from uh, Texas. This was the earliest known um, recipe. Now, when it comes to why we are all so aware of the pecan recipe, we really got Cairo syrup to thank. Um, they came out in the early 1900s. Again, they're not from the South, they were based in New York and Chicago. They were not from the South. Um, but it was probably the 1820, in the 1920s, there were some recipe leaflets, and it graduated to the back of the, the jar and has never left since about the 1930s. Um, now, the recipe that Edgar happens to like the most does not have Cairo syrup in it. doesn't have any syrup in it. He uses brown sugar. And in Nancy's book, she also has a brown sugar pecan pie, as well as just simply a brown sugar pie. Um, I I think it's his pie, I've basically abandoned using Cairo syrup, not because of the other issues we have today, but largely because this just tastes so much better. Um, Now, this is your... um, your who's your mama, uh, not who's your mama. This is the who's your pie, also known as the Indiana sugar cream pie, also known as desperation pie. Because at any point in time on a farm in, in Indiana, you would have available to you sugar, cream, and flour. And you would you know roll out the crust, you would put the cream and the sugar and the, what was it, uh, and the flour, and I have done this at home, but, you know, it was my family consuming it. And you would just take your fingers and stir it around. You didn't have to get another bowl involved. Which, And, in fact, Paula Haney um, 
has discussed this. It's if you go to the Greater Midwest Foodways uh, podcast from the dessert symposium about four years ago, um, she talks about this pie. Um, according to her, the earliest known recipe of the sugar cream pie is 1816. It's often associated with the Amish of Indiana, but they didn't come until about 1831. So it was already there when it came. And it's also um, often flavored different ways. It could be flavored with vanilla and rose water, maybe lemon and sugar or nutmeg, or you could just go plain. Now, this particular pie, I'm pretty sure it was just the plain, but I then scraped some nutmeg and put that on top. There's also a relationship with this pie to the chess pie. Because the chess pie, according to Nancy, the basic ingredients are eggs, butter, sugar, and flour. The transparent pie that you see in Kentucky and Tennessee is eggs, butter, sugar, flour, and a generous splash of milk or cream. Um, I didn't really quite know what the distinctions were until I read through Nancy's book, so I'm, I'm quite grateful to that. But when you go like into the upper uh, peninsula where there was a lot of copper mining, you get the pasty. Because pasty is something else, right? <laughs> well, you know, I've been known to mispronounce things and just continue on. Uh, and interestingly enough, I mean, the first group that came through were, were from Cornwall. And they, you know, they had their pasty with the with the, let me see, it was pork, was it pork? Sorry. Uh, with pork and turnip and potato. And let me tell you, this is a pretty hefty thing. This was a, supposed to be a single serving. Uh, you could, half was like dinner one night and the other half was lunch the next day. But around the 1900s, it became, it was a fin. The, the, the English had moved on, or the Cornish had moved on, and it was a Finnish population who also had a tradition of a pasty type pie, but they used rye flour for their crust and not white flour. However, they continued to make it with white flour after the, the Cornish had moved on. Um, now the, the pie plant, this by the way is a, uh, a century farm. It meant it was held by the same family for 100 years or more. And they get this little special designation. When this one's a little bit faded, and actually if you pass this farm today, it's, um, it's around Gray's Lake. That planting, that stand of, of rhubarb is there. The sign is missing, and there's a for sale sign. So it may be leaving the family after more than 100 years. Uh, but the, the pie plant was something that um, the first known uh, information about rhubarb was from Italy at about 1608. And about 20, 30 years later, it was like all over Europe. In fact, it was recorded in 1778 as a food plant in Europe. Um, but the, it's making it to the Americas was about 1790 when some unknown gardener in Maine either obtained seed or rootstock and started to plant their own. But by the 1820s, this plant was everywhere. People, you know, it really took off. And it's really a terrific plant because it's one of the first things that come out in spring. It comes out first, and then sometime later it's the strawberry, but, you know, they merge together and you get your strawberry rhubarb plant. Of course, you don't eat the leaves because you can get quite um, ill. Or at least it's, it has oxalic acid, I think, which can create um, kidney stones. So even if you're going, you're going to eat it, you'll just pay for it later and frequently. Um, okay, this is something I made. Uh, <laughs> well, no, actually everything I made, but this was, this was kind of like my personal recipe. Um, one of the things I have done over the years, well, it actually it started about the late 1980s. I had a friend who, used to, who had... Um, a chronic illness that made her sit frequently in doctor's offices waiting for appointments. And she started to hand make quilts. She would, you know, take the little pieces and work on it. And she would take it to, the, like, the Lake County Fair and enter it. And I showed up one time to be supportive and friendly and come and look at her, 
her quilts, which she had gotten, of course, first prize and grand champion. And I started looking at the food exhibits. Yeah. And I'm like, I can do that. And I can do that. I think I can do better than that. And, you know, that's when the disease catches on. <laughs> and within about, like, two, three years... I had not only gotten like champion, you know, ribbons, like the first year, no, but I read the little comment and it said that crust should have been a little bit thinner. So when I'm, you know, competing, I make that pie crust thin. Maybe not so much when it's just me, myself, and I. But the second year I got champion, and then the next year, grand champion, best of show. Well, you know, how much more can you go when you've gotten to the top in three years? But I also did the state fairs as well. And Crisco, at one point, had a competition at the state fairs where if you won the grand, grand poobah of a prize, was $25,000 for a kitchen overhaul. And, man, that's always my little theme in my house is to get that kitchen overhauled. So I was like little eager beaver. And you had to make a pie with Illinois ingredients. So, okay, I made a pie crust with cornmeal. Yeah, it's, you know, we have a lot of corn here. Um, I'm, there was uh, apples in there, which I sautéed and, like, had some cream. So it became like an apple crusted. And I flavored it with maple syrup because just north of um, Springfield on 55 is Funk's Grove, which now I hear there might be another maple commercial maple grove in Illinois but at least for most of the time, has been the only commercial maple grove. So I figured I could justify that one. And then, you know, and my downfall was that damn meringue. I should have just stopped where I was and not did the meringue. Um, at the state fair, everybody's little, I didn't win. But everybody's thing had a nice, neat little slice Mine had many, many spoon cuttings into it and had been like half eaten when, before it was put back on the display case. So I went and visited the superintendent and I said, you know, what about the pie? I see there was some enthusiasm. Well, we're not supposed to discuss it, but I'm going to tell you, which was very nice of her. And it, if it hadn't been for the humid Springfield summer, the meringue began to weep. I might have gotten there because once you win at the state fair, then you're invited for like sort of like the Pillsbury contest, but it's Crisco to this central location where you prepare your pie once more and you make it and you get to win. And I've been kind of hooked on state fairs ever since then. So when I got involved with Greater Midwest Foodways Alliance, which I kind of got started by making a glib remark and a phone call to Bruce Craig. Um, got to be careful what you say to Bruce. But in any case, we started it three years ago doing competitions, culinary competitions at the state fairs. We began in Illinois because it was nearby and it was a way to test it. We did last year Indiana, Iowa, well, you can see Minnesota, Missouri, and Ohio. We're going to be in South Dakota this year. Very likely we're going to be in um, uh, Kansas. And we're definitely in Wisconsin after three years of trying. They're very particular, and it took a while. But I finally got on the right rhythm with that lady, and we're going to finally do it. But we've had a great time. The challenge at this competition is to prepare a recipe pre-1950, have a history of the recipe, how it came into your family and whatever. Perhaps the oldest one was from about 1832. And then, we, of course, we have the little beauty contest, but the reality is that's never been an issue. It's more of we got two that are exactly the same and you don't know how to delineate, then you go for pretty. But people come, if you can see, there's pictures. They bring some... Um, photocopies of different documents. So this was our first prize last year at, um, in Ohio, a lemon pie that had been served in family weddings since about the 1880s. Um, this is a butterscotch pie. It did not win. Um, it could well be it has its origins 
um, well, I mean, this family's from Bloomington, Illinois. In fact, the same woman won second prize this year uh, with um, pecan, no, no, uh, peanut brittle. This was a very sweet pie. And the judges that I was working with at that moment were like, oh, this is just too sweet. This is just too sweet. I'm like, stop. You can't look at it as a contemporary point of view. It's too sweet. Is, it, is the recipe doing what it's representing and was supposed to do? And if it is, then you judge it for what it is and not inf- in, impose your, your feelings about it. Um, yes, it was really sweet. And in fact, um, a few months, uh, some point later, I did a program on Canadian food. And one of their things was butterscotch pie. And they liked it. And I found out, so is it sweet? Oh, yes, it's very, very sweet. So you never know where these things come from. Um, this was our first prize winner in Indiana last year. This was a chicken pot pie. It was really good. <laughs> you know? And I actually made it at home, and it worked out the way it should, which is really cool because you never know. This was the second prize, also in Indiana. This was a gooseberry raisin pie. And... In the narrative, the woman's mother added the raisins to it. Up till then, it had been gooseberry, gooseberry, gooseberry. But the mother decided to add the raisins. And I have to say, it, uh, you know, gooseberry is very tart, but the raisins balanced it out if you don't want that super tart. It was really a very good pie. This is the pie. One of the things that we do when we're doing these programs, when we're judging, we have somebody read the story of what the family history is. It kind of buys us some time. It gives us time to look, take pictures, taste, but it keeps them somewhat entertained. This woman's grandmother's apricot pineapple pie was the grand champion at the Indiana State Fair in 1960. And when that was read in her narrative, there was like this sucking sound at that moment. (gasps) Like, oh, well, we're not going to win today. She didn't win, but it was still a very good pie. It was still a very good pie. Um, but you could just tell everybody's like, oh, oh, this won the grand champion, we're sunk. But no, they weren't. They were fine. Um, this was a, a cheese pie, also from the same, um, the Indiana Fair. This one, the issue was, it was a little bit liquidy inside. And uh, some people were kind of alarmed by that. Um, but you know, that's the variations when you bring a cooked product to a state fair you know, it isn't like home where you dig into a little bit and go, oh, not quite right, and shove it back in the oven. Here, you've you got to live with what you got. Um, we also had, this was last, this year, um, was the Blackberry Bubble, which is kind of an, an early-ish, you know, like, kind of like the cobbler. It's one of the things leading to. Last year, we had Blackberry, um, sorry, Blackberry Dumplings that won first prize at the Illinois State Fair, and these were little tiny berries that they had just picked from the wild. That person got first prize. I'm talking the the blackberry. We go to the Indiana State Fair. It's the same sort of recipe, the Indiana blackberry dumplings. And I have to say, some of the people are like, oh, are the same people in the audience? I don't think so. But it was kind of funny to bump into it. Here was a, a pasty that came this last year. And this woman, well, obviously she's from here in Illinois, but her um, grandparents were miners in Lead, South Dakota. So this was their family recipe. Um, and then we also had the black walnut pie, which they were saying, you know, this is like black gold. This was like, you know, considering the amount of labor and all that's involved in, in, in shelling a, a, a black walnut, I can understand why they consider it kind of black gold. And this was the rhubarb pie, first prize at the, Illinois, at the Iowa State Fair. And the people who made it very much emphasized not that red stuff, but the green rhubarb, the stuff that you don't really see in the, in the grocery stores so much anymore. And I remember when we lived in Massachusetts, when I was a little kid, we had the green rhubarb in our yard as well. In fact, just to tell you how insignificant a crust could be, when my mom proceeded to make a pie crust with too much salt, like way too much salt, my sister and I managed to kind of like remove the top, eat the filling, put it back down very gently, 
And when Grandma came to visit, it was served so by. There was nothing left inside. <laughs> but in any case, uh, this was really cool, this, this rhubarb pie. This was the black raspberry pie. These people came in second place. But it really wasn't for the pie, even though the pie was excellent. They had this outstanding ice cream which they didn't give us very much of. It was largely melted, of which I, there's no picture of it that exists, but it was outstanding, outstanding. I mean, you meet some very interesting things. And this was a raisin pie that we bumped into in Iowa, and it was funny because as we were driving toward the state fair, we stopped at some small town that was supposed to have some diner that had been there since the 1920s or 30s where they built a whole parking lot structure above it it's still there. It's, you can go find it via the alley. But there's a whole parking lot structure. And they had in the pie case all their homemade pies. And one of them was a raisin pie. And I was like, oh, damn, we're missing that today. Another name, by the way, for raisin pie is funeral pie. Uh, and then later in the day, we ended up having a, a, a nice tasting of it at the uh, Iowa State Fair. So it's... Uh, the the whole Greater Midwest Foodways. This is kind of like our kind of our little jewel of a project at the moment. Uh, eventually, I hope we're going to start doing oral histories. But what's one of the byproducts of going to all the state fairs is now, instead of wondering how do we meet some of these people that we could talk to about different local lore, we now at least have a list of about seventy five or a hundred that we can contact. But I thought before I'd close, I would comment a little bit on how to make a pie crust. Because I know that's usually the issue. I'm personally, I'm all about the filling, but I know it took me a long time to conquer how to make a pie crust. In fact, believe it or not, <laughs> some years ago, I put out 15 pounds one winter uh, making pies, learning how to make a pie. I made like two, three pies a week until I got it right. Uh, but I mean, everybody was my, my frel- you know, I, I was everybody's friend because they liked to have the pie because we couldn't eat it all ourselves. That was 15 pounds plus a lot more since then, but that's another story. Um, I've made pies with butter. I have made pies with lard. I have gotten the leaf lard that wraps around the kidney that is especially good. I've also used Crisco. And in fact, uh, when I want to have a pie and I want to get it in the oven within the next 20 minutes, I do go to Crisco. Because all those other pies with the lard and the butter and such all take longer. They all need to be chilled. And, of course, the irony of the chilling fact I- issue is once it's been chilled, you have to let it warm up a little bit before you can roll it out. Crisco, you know, gets it done very effectively. And I'm the, for a double crust, I'm two cups of flour teaspoon of salt and I you know mix it in with the uh, and then I add about two-thirds a cup of Crisco you know if I'm doing something fancy schmancy yeah I'll go to something else but you know for me my family we're fine and then I cut it in and I cut it in until it kind of looks like that well there's very and it's better to have varying sizes instead of all like cornmeal because then the flakiness will be a little bit different it'll be a little more stratified Then I add the ice water. Now, one of my first impressions when I started to make pie crust years ago was I thought you need to put the least amount of water to get the thing to gather together. And I've kind of come to the conclusion, if the recipe says three to five tablespoons of water, put in five tablespoons of water. Because, and you want that feel to me like like Play-Doh when you were a kid. To me, that's, that's going to roll out very successfully. Some years ago, when I was preparing most of the slides for this, my niece came over because she wanted to learn how to make pies, and I had to make a lot of pies, so this was a good opportunity. And there was one crust where we could not remember, did we put four tablespoons of water in there, or did we put five tablespoons of water? I said, you know what, let's just go with it, and let's see if we can tell the difference. We, became, we came to the conclusion there was four tablespoons of water in there because it was the hardest crust to deal with that day. Not that hard, but, you know. So I mix it in, the water, and I try to do very little mixing because I don't really want that gluten to get too activated because that's once the gluten is activated, then you really do have to let the crust rest. You know, if you roll it out and it springs back, um, just 
fold the tent up for a few minutes, go put it in the refrigerator for at least a half an hour, and come back to it because you're just going to be fighting against the dough. So when I get it where it's kind of moist, then that's when I kind of like press it together. You know, I want to keep it not too agitated. And I kind of form it into a disc, and I'll put a little bit of flour, just a little bit, because you put a lot of effort. If You, you know, you, you see Ladies Home Journal or some other magazine of that ilk, they always have that pile of flour on the edge, you know, they, and the rolling pin is there. That's too much flour, too, too much flour. So I, I, I'll roll it out into a patty, and then I put a little bit of flour in there, and... And then I put it between two sheets of wax paper because, again, it helps to minimize your use of flour. I'll use parchment, too, but, you know, uh, wax paper is cheaper. When I roll it out, it's like everywhere it's a different direction each time, not one direction or another. And then, you know, and then I, here's the other issue, the, that edging. You know, a lot of people leave it flat or they get really decorative. Think of it as a gutter. Something to keep the contents in. I tend toward a rather um, high border. That way, let's say if I made a recipe for filling and I made maybe more than really what the pie can hold, that border will contain it. Um, and this was, you know, making a crust. Now, what I do when I finish the crust, like the crust here, they, they all look lovely, but I tend toward a darker crust. I'll put milk on there, and then I sprinkle with sugar. That also means I have to keep an eye on it sometimes and maybe tend some foil. But I, I like a crust that's a little bit darker, but that's, you know, personal preference. But I have to say, those would do better at the state fair than mine darker because that's really what they're looking for is light. And there's like a whole array of pies. But I want you to know, the fear of making a crust is not just today. In Recipes Tried and True compiled by the Ladies' Aid Society of the First Presbyterian Church of Marion, Ohio in 1894, there was the following statement. There are plenty of women capable of choosing good husbands, or, if not good when chosen, of making them good. (laughs) Yet these same women may be ignorant on the subject of making a good pie. Ingenuity, good judgment, and great care should be making, should, uh, great care should be used in making all kinds of pastry. So even back then, they were gun shy on the issue of pie crust. So that's it. Any questions? Oh. Yes, madam. I don't know, but I made some last year for that pecan program. Um, that was, in fact, the recipe that I found that I used was very much closer to what Edgar does with the brown sugar. It, it, it is, you know, it's just a mini pecan tart. But I, I, I don't know. Maybe you know, because you're Canadian. No, no, no. That was the Canadian program, the, the talk that we did years ago, like a couple of years ago on... Canadian expatriates, but I don't know. I mean, I didn't do the talk. There were others that did the talking. I just ran around and provided the food. Yes, Louisa. You mentioned um, rose water as the possible flavor for the decoration pies. Yes. So I actually did not know that that was a common flavoring here. So how would that have been used? Like how they made historically the rose water? Well, the rose, okay, this was related to the... The desperation pie and the use of rose water. Um, until about 1870, rose water and orange water, which were largely probably imported, but I don't know precisely, were the flavorings. Vanilla really didn't come into standard use like we see today until about 1870, 1880. And I think once that shifted into vanilla, that became the more dominant. And I have made rose water pies and orange water pies and if you're not careful you've got to be very judicious it quick it can too much can quickly turn into soapy tasting or perfumey tasting which we're not used to anymore um, and can you make them well? oh you mean, 
I, I can make you one, and I could also make you, I could give you the recipe, too. Because that's, you know, oh, yeah, well, I'll, if you really want, what the heck. Hey, yes. Um, personally, I, I cannot really say, but I would say, uh, why was raisin pie called funeral pie? I just know it was called that. But I would also have to say that probably raisins were something that was always on hand. And it also was dark, so it has that funeralish look. I just know, because I used to live on the East Coast, and that's what they called it. But precisely why, I don't know. But if somebody else does know, anybody know why the raisin? Yes. So do you think if that dish, the origins of funeral was something like you became known when you came to funerals, you brought this dish, so it became automatically that's the funeral? That's what, I, I that's what you saw in small towns. What? They call it funeral pie because it lasts three or four days easily. If you're coming by buckboard or whatever to a funeral and they didn't have the kind of things we have, so there was a preservation aspect to it as well. Anybody else? Yes. The desperation pie. Ah, it was also called finger pie. Oh yeah, and in the in the in the recipe I read, they said use three fingers. So oh, I'm very dutiful. <laughs> But that's yeah, finger pie, desperation pie. Man, that pie has many, many names. Yes, sir. Since you broached the, broach the subject uh, of uh, concrete and got off of it, <laughs> what about stone pie using pedo dough? You mean, you mean in, in I, well, I'm sure if there's a Greek community, there's Greek. There well, that's true. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I don't know about it in a Midwestern context, but that doesn't mean it's not. I have, um, I used phyllo dough actually for the first time last year because I tested a recipe for Cook's Illustrated on making spinach pie. Um, I thought it was, I, I was, it was interesting. I had never used it before. You know, you put on all that butter and this would keep layering and layering. It was fine. I don't know what to say. Yeah, well, I don't know. What to... I've used it. <laughs> but it didn't fit into the context of this. But maybe it should have. I didn't think about it. Anybody else? Yes. You know, you said you're going to the different state fairs. Right. Um, are they, do they allow somebody from out of state to, to enter one of these contests? Uh, it usually don't allow... But you don't know. You have to go read. I, I, in fact, probably the easiest one, closest one here, would be the Wisconsin State Fair. I don't know. I don't know. I, I know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I have seen, like, at the Lake County Fairs, uh, you know, the, the regional fairs around here, I have seen competitors from other states. But, well, it was largely in the animal area, you know, where they were bringing in horses and cows and stuff like that but it, it really you have to go read the rules it's independently administrated each one but they do allow judges from other states because otherwise I would be banned at the border <laughs> by the way just on, on talking about judging I have judging I've done judging for 4-H I've done the judging obviously for this project one of the more unique judging challenges we had uh, was about four or five years ago the McHenry County Historical Society had their, it was around the 4th of July, their annual pie event. And, and it was myself and two other people. There were 40 pies to judge. We had about an hour and a half window. And we were doing it in front of a live audience. And there was this one woman in the front row, red as a bee in the face, mumbling under breath, you're not going to win, I'm not going to win, I'm not going to win. 
guess what? When you show up with a pie that's not a pie, you're not going to win by your own design. She came with like a, like a, a crumble. You know, where there was no pie crust. We, part of the evaluation of this competition was a cry, pie crust, and there was none to be seen. So, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy is to show up with the wrong thing. Uh, in fact, talking about self-fulfilling prophecy, at the Minnesota State Fair, one of these heirloom recipes pre-1950, mind you. Now, we realize some people just enthusiastically may not know the origins of a recipe, like the seven-layer cookie is more like late 50s. Somebody brought that in and said, this is our family recipe, I'm not going to argue with them. But they had one person submitted a recipe where they had altered the ingredients for a a non-gluten product. You know, with all these gums and whatever the substitutions you have to make. That one didn't, we couldn't really begin to judge because it just just was not pre-1950 by any stretch of the imagination. Anything else? Well, we have pie here. It's from Nancy's It's from Nancy's book, I believe. One of I think I'm sure. One is um What was it the pecan? No, did you do something different? Oh, okay, tell me what you did. You went for the you went for the classics, number 1 and number 2. And what people would love. Okay, let's go have pie. <laughs>